Thank you for checking out our sermon here at Hope Church. We exist to connect people to live the life of a Jesus follower. And we're excited that you came across this message and are tuning in. Just wanna make you aware of a couple things before we get to the sermon. First, we'd love to connect with you. You can follow us on our social networks by searching at Hope Church LV. Also, be sure to check out our website, hopechurchonline.com. There, you can find out more information about who we are and where we're headed as a church. Once again, thanks for checking out our sermon here at Hope Church. Please let us know if there's any questions you have or any way we can come alongside you and your family. Enjoy the message. Tell you, church, don't ever take for granted the manifest presence of God. Amen. God doesn't owe us moments like that. He didn't owe us that. It's His grace that ushers us into His presence and just allows us to get just a little taste of what heaven's gonna be like, huh? Mm. Wow. Uh, I gotta preach a sermon. Mm. Uh, Paul is one of the great characters of the New Testament. Paul was a missionary. Paul wrote almost half of the New Testament. Significant impact in our faith that we all cling to today. Paul wrote many letters, but theologians debate about which one was the first, but we pretty much agree that one of the two first letters that Paul ever wrote He wrote them over a span of about 20 years. But one of the first two was a letter he wrote to a church in a city called Thessalonica. It was a city that Paul had visited on his second missionary journey. Paul had been sent out from the church at Antioch. He was visiting this city. He brought the gospel to the people at Antioch, excuse me, to the people at Thessalonica for the very first time. They'd never heard the gospel before. And many in the city of Thessalonica came to know Jesus. They accepted the gospel. Paul came and he told them that, yes, it is true that we've all sinned against God. But Paul told them that God loved you anyway. He loved you so much that he sent his son Jesus into this world. God took on humanity. He died on a cross and he rose again from the dead so that you could be saved and experience eternal life. And when the People in Thessalonica heard this. They embraced the gospel. They believed in Jesus and they received eternal life. But then there was a problem in this church. You see, they weren't deep theologians. They had just embraced the gospel. This was all very new for them. And when they heard this gospel of eternal life, they took it literally. And they believed that it meant they would never die. And As they began to face persecution in the early church, some of these people who'd embraced the gospel and been born again began to die as a result of persecutors. And these early Christians became troubled with that. It caused them to be anxious and nervous and say, wait a minute, I thought he said eternal life, and now so-and-so and and -and so-and-so, they've died, and we don't know how to deal with this. And so Paul under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God, writes them a letter. We have it in our Bibles as the book of 1 Thessalonians. And if you notice, if you (coughs) read the entire book, in all five chapters of this little letter, Paul addresses the second coming of Jesus. He's trying to bring correction and encouragement. Let me read you one little paragraph out of this letter. 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 13. Look what he says. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, so that you will not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. He said, hey, hey, I understand that some of your brothers and sisters in Christ have died, and I understand that that's sad, and that brings you grief. But look what he said. We don't grieve like everybody grieves. We don't grieve as those who have no hope. We grieve with Hope. Look what he says, verse 14. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring, what does it say next? With him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. Here's what Paul said. Paul said, don't worry. They're just ahead of you. They're already with him. They're already there. You don't have to be troubled. You don't have to be anxious. They're already experiencing the eternal life 
that we wrote to you about. Then look what he says, verse 15. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who've fallen asleep. Here's what he said. Hey, they just got there before us. Don't freak out. Don't panic. Everything's okay. They're just a few steps ahead. Look what he says, verse 16. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and the trumpet of God, and then the dead in Christ will be raised first. Then we who are alive and remain will be, what does it say? Called up together, what? With them. I I vote for being in that crowd, amen? I want to get up in the caught up crowd. I'd rather not die. Just just let me be. If I get to vote, let me be in the caught up together with them crowd. Anybody else with me this morning? Amen? Yeah. We don't get a vote, but I'm just saying, if we did. Caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. Wow. They were struggling. They were concerned. Paul writes in this letter and says, hey, hey, don't worry. They're already with the Lord. He's going to bring them back with him to come and get us, and we're going to all be caught up together with them in the clouds. Then we're just going to spend eternity together with them, with the Lord. It's going to be great. And these young believers, again, took him literal. Paul said he's coming again, so maybe he's coming this week. So here's what happened. These believers in Thessalonica started quitting their jobs and just looking up. I wonder if it's going to be today. They stopped contributing to society. They just got consumed with this fact that Jesus is coming again. Hey, I don't need to work a job. Jesus is coming back. I don't need to save money. Jesus is coming back. I don't need to plan for the future. Jesus is coming back. So Paul wrote him another letter. It's called Second Thessalonians. I'm not making this up. It's where these letters came from. Look what he said to them in Second Thessalonians chapter 3. I'll put a little bit of it on the screen. Look what he said. For we hear... That some among you, Paul's trying to be very gentle, isn't he? We hear that there's some among you leading an undisciplined life, doing no work at all, but acting like busybodies. That phrase, acting like busybodies, Spiro Zodiates, a Greek scholar, said they're everywhere doing everything but doing nothing. These people became so heavenly minded, they were no earthly good. Look what Paul said. Now such persons, we command and exhort in the Lord Jesus Christ, get a job. (laughs) To work in quiet fashion and eat your own bread. Here's what Paul said. Hey, if a man doesn't work, he doesn't eat. Go get a job. Stop being a busybody. Stop being a nuisance to everybody. Get your head out of the clouds and go back to work. Now, that, that, that story of First and Second Thessalonians paints a picture for us that I want to draw two realities out of. Here's the first one. Every generation of Jesus followers since the early church has thought, we're living in the last days. You know anybody like that? Huh? Don't look at them. It'd be awkward. But you know them, right? We're living in the last days. Every generation since the early church has thought, we're living in the last days. Jesus is coming back in our lifetime. Remember Y2K, right? (laughs) End of the world. That's not new to us. It happened in Thessalonica. It happened in the Roman Empire with wicked emperors like Nero. When Nero was reigning and ruling, the church thought this has got to be the end of the world. It happened in the last century when a wicked dictator like Adolf Hitler took control and the entire world was at war with each other. They called it World War II. Everybody thought this is it. The world is coming to an end and the same is true today. And because of this reality, in the room this morning, there are two extremes, okay? And I want to try to 
humorously, and I say that because I don't want you to get your feelings hurt, all right? Don't, don't get offended by what I'm about. But, but there are two extremes when it comes to this idea of end times, and all of us fall somewhere on this spectrum between the two extremes, okay? Now, I said extremes. Here's extreme number one. I call them the obsessed with the end times crowd, Somebody came to your mind, right? <laughs> yeah. If you're in this crowd and we were to visit your home this afternoon, we would probably find an entire wall in your house dedicated to charts and graphs that look something like you would see on the television show, The Blacklist, right? There's yarn and there's strings and there's charts. You are day, if you're in this extreme, you are daily scanning the headlines of world news reports over your breakfast cereal. And by the way, you're carefully making sure that your breakfast cereal doesn't form any five-pointed stars. And as you scan the world headlines, you are looking for the names of world leaders that have three words and six letters each. You have a special bookcase in your house. For all of your Tim LaHaye, Hal Lindsey, and John Hagee books, right? If you're in this crowd, you even believe that Nicolas Cage deserved an Oscar for his appearance in the Left Behind movie, right? It's the, I'm obsessed with the end times crowd. They see it everywhere. They, they go to a Chinese restaurant, open a fortune cookie, and there's end time prophecy right there in the fortune cookie. It's everywhere. Then there's the other extreme. It's the what I call, I could care less about the end times crowd, right? Now, if you're in this group, you're already weirded out by the fact I've said end times this morning. You're uncomfortable that we even use that term. As a matter of fact, if you'd known I was going to talk about the end times today, you would have stayed home and watched a podcast on an Apple device of your favorite skinny jeans biblical thought leader. You wouldn't have even come today. You hear the word end times and you immediately start thinking of Harry Potter and Lord of the Rings images. You think it's a waste of time to talk about it. You'd rather be doing social good. You'd rather be posting a selfie of yourself feeding the homeless by purchasing a pair of trendy new shoes, right? Care less about the end times. Don't talk to me about that. Now, obviously, I'm over-exaggerating these two extremes. But the reality is we all fall somewhere between these two extremes when it comes to talking about the last days or the end of time. So here's the second reality I want you to see. Some generation of Jesus followers will experience the last days of life on earth as we know it, and we are closer to the last days than we've ever been before. It's not a fairy tale. It's not some trumped-up story. Listen, this book is not a cafeteria line. You get to go through and pick out the parts you like and leave the broccoli and spinach to be left over. Right? You, know, you don't get to do that. This, everything in this book is true or none of this book is true. And this book says... Some generation of Jesus followers is going to experience the last days on this earth as we know it. And here's the deal. We're closer to that than we've ever been before. And should the Lord tarry his coming and we gather back here next Sunday, guess what? We're going to be closer then than we've ever been before. If you're visiting with us, we are right now studying through a New Testament letter called 1 John. If you have your Bible, I want you to open it to 1 John chapter 2. And I've set this up this way this morning because John spent the first couple of chapters of this letter writing to us about our walk as believers. But now John is about to shift the focus. He's not going to be talking about our walk now. John is about to talk about the end of time as we know it. This morning, we're going to launch into a four-week study that we are calling Living in the Last Days. 
I want to read one verse of Scripture today out of this letter. We're going to read chapter 2, verse 18. And with this one verse of Scripture, what I'm going to try to do today is get some of this on the table so that for the next four weekends we can unpack it together. So today is going to be somewhat of a a big introduction for us to try to define some key terms so that we're all looking at this from the same perspective. 1 John chapter 2, verse 18, look what John says. Children, it is the last hour. Now, he opens the phrase with the word children. It's a word that is a a term in the Greek language that speaks to an infant, a small child. But it's also used in the New Testament to talk to (coughs) about when when someone is addressing someone in a fatherly way with a, a tone of intimacy. And here's what it means. John is not beginning to talk about the end times to scare them. John is not speaking to them to create anxiety. John is speaking to them like a father to his children to encourage them in the truth. Children, it is the last hour. And just as you heard that Antichrist is coming. Everybody's nervous now. Even now, many Antichrists have appeared. From this, we know that it is the last hour. So I want to take this one verse. And I want to try to define some terms and bring some application to us today. Here's the first question I want to ask this morning. What is the last hour? He says, children, it is the last hour. What does that mean when he says last hour? Well, the word last is a Greek word. It's the Greek word eschatos. That may sound a little bit familiar because if you study theology, you have heard the term eschatology. Eschatology is from this word, eschatos. You put the ology on the end of it. That means the study of what he's talking about. When you hear the term in theological books, or if you ever hear a Bible teacher use the word eschatology, all that simply means is the study of the last, the study of the end times. This word last is a word that refers to the final item in a series of items. It comes after all others in time. It means the only one remaining. It's the last. He calls it the last hour. Now, when we hear the word hour, we think about 60 minutes out of a day. But in the Bible, the word hour sometimes refers to 60 minutes out of a day. But more than that, it often refers to time as a season Or time as a span of time. It can mean a literal hour, but often it does not. What John is referring to when he says it's the last hour, John is writing about a season of time which comes at the end of all other seasons of time. It's the last hour. Now maybe you're thinking... Well, he wrote this 2,000 years ago. That's a pretty long hour, Pastor. 2,000 years, really? I mean, we think in terms of time, we think of lifetime. And a lifetime is, you know, 80, 90, 100 years. And and even that, we think is such a long time. John said it was the last hour, and it's been 2,000. Surely John was wrong in what he wrote. Well, don't forget what Peter wrote in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 8. Look at this verse on the screen. But do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years and a thousand years like one day. Listen, don't forget God exists outside of the parameters of time. <laughs> right? Go think about that for a while this afternoon. Listen, now I'm just kidding. Don't think about that very long. If you do, you'll be heading for a bottle of Tylenol, right? Because it'll give you a headache. God exists outside the parameters of time. Here's what that means. God sees Genesis 1-1 and Revelation 21 all at the same time because God is not limited by time. He is eternal. We serve a really 
big God. So that the Bible says to the Lord, a day's like a thousand years and a thousand years is a day. We think 2,000 years is a long time. God says, just been a weekend. I want to try to give you a, a framework to put this in. And, and let me go ahead and tell you, um, I, I'm trying today to, to help us all from a point of simplicity understand God's global or eternal timeline, if you will. And so what I'm about to do, I'm about to do this in an overly simplified way. So if you are a deep theological student and you take issue with what I'm about to do, tell somebody else. I'm not interested in it. I'm just trying to be simple. I'm not trying to argue. I'm just trying to be simple, okay? I believe as you study the scripture on God's timeline in an overly simplified way, we can look at God's timeline in five ages. First of all, there's the age of eternity past. What is that? It's everything prior to Genesis 1-1. God is eternal. Here's what that means. He has no beginning and he has no ending. Here's what that means. He am. That's why when he introduced himself to Moses, he said, you tell him I am has sent you. He didn't say I was. He didn't say I will be. He just said I am. Why? Because he always am. He always has been and he always will be God. When you talk about before, how long did God exist before he created the world? I know the answer. Forever. Gazillions and gazillions and gazillions of years. You say, I can't comprehend that. Me either. God is bigger than our ability to comprehend everything about him. And I'm glad about that because if I could figure him out, that's not a very big God. The age of eternity passed. Then there is what I call, for this illustration, the age of creation. It's Genesis 1-1 through the point when humanity fell in the Garden of Eden and ate of the fruit. Now, age of eternity passed, millions, 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 millions of years. Age of creation, how long is that? At least eight days. Six literal days of creation. On the seventh day, God rested. Maybe Monday morning of week two, Eve ate the fruit, game on. Eight days. But here's what we don't know. We don't know how long they were in the garden before she ate the fruit. We don't know. Was it a day? A week? Six weeks? 60 years? 6,000 years? 100,000 years? We honestly do not know. Age of creation. Then there is what I call the age of the fall. All the way to the coming of Christ. It's the promise of the Messiah. From Genesis 3 all the way to Matthew chapter 1. For thousands of years, God started by beginning a covenant with Abraham. God said, humanity that I've created has fallen. I love them. I'm going to send a Savior, a Messiah, who will redeem them and save them. So God began in an Abrahamic covenant saying, through your seed is going to come one who is going to save the peoples of the earth. And from Abraham all the way through the priests and the kings and the sacrificial system and the prophets, God was giving us puzzle piece after puzzle piece identifying who this glorious grand Messiah was going to be. It's the age of the prophecy and the promise of the Messiah that was going to come. That's number three. It concluded with 400 years of complete silence from God between Malachi and Matthew in your Bible. In your Bible, it's one page, but in actual history, it was 400 years of silence. And then in Matthew chapter 1, we begin the fourth era, which is the last days. It began with the coming of Jesus Christ. God became 
a man. And for 33 and a half years, God lived on this earth as a human being. Jesus was God in the flesh. So much God, it was as if he were not man at all. And so much man, it was as if he were not God at all. 100% God, 100% man. He lived a sinless life. And then he did what what we couldn't do. He perfectly fulfilled the law of God. Then he offered that body on a sacrifice, on the cross as a sacrifice for our sins. Jesus died for the sins of the world, but he didn't stay dead. He rose again from the dead, defeating death, hell, and the grave so that you and I could be born again into a relationship with God. And ever since Jesus ascended back to the Father, we've been living in the last days, and there's only one thing yet to happen. Jesus coming again. Him coming again. That's what Paul was writing about. And when Jesus comes again, we begin the last age. You know what it's called? Mark wrote about it. Jesus said it this way. Jesus said, the age to come, eternal life. Eternity past. Age of creation, fall of humanity through the promise of the Messiah, the Messiah coming, providing salvation for the peoples of the world, Christ coming again to take us to be with him in eternity, and for all eternity we spend with the Father as his children. The last hour, what do we say? It's the last in a series of items. Eternity past, creation, promise of a Messiah. Messiah comes, and then to bring it to an end, he comes again to usher in the age that we know as eternity with God forever. Now, when you talk about the last hour, let me give you two practical applications. Here's the first one. The last hour means the end of life as we know it on earth. You do realize this morning that this thing we call Christianity is moving somewhere, right? It's not going to always be like this. One day, we won't be the kingdom of God within the kingdom of this world. One day, the kingdom of God is going to take over and rule and reign for all eternity. One day, he's coming again. And get this, it could be today. Everybody be all right with that if it's today. You know, the problem is some of us gotten so wrapped up in this world, we see the second coming of Jesus as an inconvenience in our schedule. Lord, if you could please put that off, I've got some things I'd like to do first. John just wrote about it. In verse 17 of this same chapter, John said, the world is passing away. This world as we know, it's not going to be like this forever. Peter, it's not just language with John. Peter wrote the same thing in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 7. Peter said the end of all things is near. It is all coming to an end. Jesus himself said it. Let me show it to you. Matthew chapter 24, verse 14. Jesus said, this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the world, in the whole world, as a testimony to all the nations, and then the what? Will come. The end of what? The end of the world as we know it. One writer said, In biblical thought, the last time is the end of one age and the beginning of another. It is not only a time of ending, it is a time of new beginning. So here's the second practical reality here about the last hour. The last hour means the beginning of life in eternity. How about this? To the follower of Jesus Christ today, if you are here and you are a follower of Jesus, the end of the world, the end of life as we know it, means the beginning of eternity with God. Yes! 
Listen, if that doesn't excite you, we need to get excited about that. Last, last fall, we preached through a six-week series on heaven. And man, I'm telling you, just studying through that got me so excited about what is to come in eternity. If you weren't here for that series, go back and watch it and you'll shout amen when we say that the end of the world means the beginning of life in eternity with God. Here's what Peter wrote about it, 2 Peter chapter 3. He said, but according to his promise, we are looking We're looking for the new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. You looking for that? Are you looking for that? But if you're not a follower of Jesus, if you're not a follower of Jesus, the end of life as we know it on earth means for you the beginning of an eternity separated from God. I want to read you a verse from Revelation chapter 20, verse 19. Listen what it says. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Now listen, I know, I know, it's not cool, it's not contemporary, and it's not relevant to talk about an eternity separated from God in a place called hell. I know that there are people that <laughs> will walk out of a sermon like this and they say, oh, he's, he's just one of those hellfire and brimstone preachers. Let me, let me tell you the truth. I told you a moment ago. You don't get to pick and choose which parts of it. It's either all this book or none of this book. And let me just tell you something. I don't care about you at all if I don't tell you this. I am not worth anything as a man who stands up and says he believes this book if I know you are headed to a Christless eternity. And I don't tell you about that. If we die apart, if this world comes to an end and I do not have a relationship with Jesus, I'm headed for a Christless eternity, separated from God. Why would God let this last? Why would this carry on for 2,000 years? Let me tell you why. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9 tells us, look at it. The Lord is not slow about his promise as some count slowness. But he is patient towards you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. You know why God has tarried the coming of the Lord for 2,000 years? Let me tell you why. He loves you. And he longs for you to be saved from an eternity apart from him. It's the last hour. Here's the second question we want to wrestle with this morning. What is the Antichrist? We hear the word Antichrist. How many of you heard that word before, Antichrist? You've heard it before, right? Yeah, pretty much everybody goes to church, you've heard the word Antichrist. Like we, we hear it so much from different people that we think it's like all over the Bible, right? You know it's only used five times in the entire New Testament. I just read two of them in one verse. There's only three more. Two more of them are in 1 John, the letter we're reading. The fifth one is in 3 John. That's it. It's only five places this term's used in the whole Bible. The term antichrist is a compound word made up of two words. First word, anti. It means to be against or in the place of. The word Christos is the second half of this word. It's the word Christ. You put it together, it means to be opposed to or in the place of Christ. William Barclay, who a guy, I don't always agree with his theology, but he's a great linguistic scholar. Listen to what he said. Antichrist can therefore mean either the opponent or adversary of Christ or the one who seeks to put himself in the place of Christ. And John in verse 18 alludes to the Antichrist in two ways. First of all, he talks about the person 
of the Antichrist. Look back at verse 18. Children, it is the last hour, and just as you heard, that's important, right? (laughs) Just as you heard. It's what a new concept. The early church had talked about this. He said, you've heard about it. That Antichrist, singular, is coming. John, first of all, addresses the person of the Antichrist. John is talking about this one who's going to come. And so for sake of time, let me give you a definition that our pastors here at Hope have have, have worked on and come up with for this idea of the Antichrist. Here's the definition. A personal opponent of Christ who comes as a false messiah before the end of the world seeking world domination. That's the Antichrist. The Bible says there is going to be a person who comes on the world scene at the end of time. Now, a lot we don't know about that. We still going to be here as the church when that happens? Listen, it depends on whether you fall pre, post, mid, whatever, wherever you want to fall on some of that stuff, right? We don't know a lot, but here's what we do know. At the end of the age, there's going to be one that's going to step up on the scene who's going to present himself as a false messiah, but he's going to be against Christ. Now, even though this term antichrist is only used five times, there are other terms the Bible uses to refer to this person. Listen to what James Montgomery Boyce said. He said, the names names given to this terrifying figure in these prophecies point to his totally evil nature and demonic goals. A horn, a beast, the man of lawlessness or perdition, and the Antichrist. Now, some people hear this and they think about the Antichrist, and man, people just get all torqued out over it. I have people who literally, they come to me and say, hey, hey, do you think so-and-so is the Antichrist? <laughs> Pastor, I know, I know it says we're living in the last days. Do, do, you, think, do you think this person's the Antichrist? Here's what I tell them. I don't know. And neither do you. Close up your charts and graphs. We don't know. We don't know. Jesus said, no man knows the day or the hour. So so here's what I'd say that says to all of us. Stop trying to figure it out. We don't know. We don't know the day or the hour. We don't know. But, But here's what I do know. Look at Revelation chapter 19, verse 20. It's good news. And the beast was seized. This one who comes on the scene in opposition to Christ, the beast was seized, and with him is false prophet, and these two were thrown alive into the lake of fire which burns with brimstone. Here's what I'm telling you. I've read the end of the story, and we win. Jesus has already defeated the enemy. This is not something we got to be afraid about. This is not something we got to lay awake at night about. Jesus Christ is king, and he is victorious. But there's the person of the Antichrist. But, But secondly, notice this. John also mentions the spirit of the Antichrist. Look back at verse 18. Children, it is the last hour, and just as you heard, that Antichrist, singular, is coming. Even now, many Antichrists, plural, have appeared. So since the time of the early church to today, the spirit of the Antichrist has been alive and at work. Danny Aiken writes about it this way. Listen to what he says. The spirit of the Antichrist always diminishes the person and work of Christ. The Antichrist spirit thinks and then teaches incorrectly concerning who Jesus Christ is and what Jesus Christ has done. Next weekend, Pastor Tom's going to talk a little more about that as we unpack this a little bit deeper. We're going to dig deeper into this principle. He's going to talk to us about how the spirit of the Antichrist denies the person of Jesus. Every time, listen, whenever you hear anyone or anything diminish who Jesus is or what Jesus has done, that is the spirit of of the Antichrist. Jesus is God. Jesus is 100% God. Jesus is eternal God. Jesus is 
God. And Jesus came as a man, a human being, and he bore the sins of the world, and he died, and he defeated death, hell, and the grave, and he rose again, and he's the only way to be saved. Anytime you hear anyone or anything diminishing the person of Jesus or the work of Jesus, that is the spirit of the Antichrist. Now, we see it in a lot of ways. For example, you see it in secular culture. The world, we talked about that last weekend, the world, secular culture would say, we like Jesus. We like Jesus as a good teacher. Like all the other good teachers. He's just a good teacher. If you follow the teaching of Jesus and just love everybody the way Jesus said love everybody, we'd all have a Coke and a smile and just get along. Jesus is a good teacher. Here's the problem with that. He claimed to be a whole lot more than just a good teacher. You don't show up and say, I'm God, and go, hey, that's a good teacher. No, somebody walks in here today and says, I'm God, then you either need to say, uh, you're crazy, uh, you're lying, or we better start worshiping. There's no other room there, right? But culture would say, He's not, he's not this God. He's just a good teacher, like, like, like Gandhi or like Buddha. He's just a good teacher. If you follow us, you know what that is? It is the spirit of the Antichrist, diminishing and devaluing who Jesus is and what he's done. But you don't just see it in secular culture. You see it in cults, those that present themselves as Christian but redefine who Jesus is. Listen, we got a big one here in our own city. It's called Mormonism. Let me tell you what Mormonism teaches about Jesus. Mormonism doesn't teach Jesus is the God. Mormonism teaches Jesus was a primordial spirit just like Lucifer. They were half-brothers in eternity. And the reason Lucifer became Satan is because God chose Jesus to come into the world and be the Savior. God sent Jesus here as a man. Jesus came here as a man, and he became a God of a planet. And now you and I have the opportunity, just like Jesus did, to become a God of our own planet for all eternity. That is not the Jesus of this book. It is a Jesus that denies the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. It denies the sufficiency of his sacrifice. And every time you see that, it is the spirit of the Antichrist. You don't just see it in cults. You see it in world religion. Largest world religion happening in the world right now is Islam. Islam acknowledges Jesus. I've sat down in the Middle East with Islamic leaders and had conversations about the differences between Christianity. And they say, oh, we believe in Jesus. Jesus was a wonderful prophet. He was one of five prophets. He he wasn't even in, in Islam. He's not even the greatest prophet. He's just one of five. Muhammad is the great prophet. You know what it is? It's a diminishing and a devaluing of the person of Jesus Christ, who is eternal God. And it is a diminishing and a devaluing of what he accomplished for us on the cross. You know what that is? It's the spirit of the Antichrist. That's what it is. John says, there's one who's coming, but right now you need to know that the spirit of the Antichrist is real. Now, Some of you are going to want to go deeper in some of this. Uh, So we've purchased some books that are available at the Resource Center. We have three of them. An R.C. Sproul book called The Last Days, a John MacArthur book called The Second Coming, and an Adrian Rogers book called Unveiling the End Times in Our Times. When you start studying this stuff, listen, there's some nutcases out there. So we've tried to give you from, listen, these three guys write from different theological perspectives on some of the details But they are trusted evangelical scholars. We've made these books available, or you can buy them online if you want to go deeper in some of this. So here's where I want to close today. How does all this apply today? I'm just trying to get to work tomorrow, Pastor. How does all this apply to me today? Let me give you you three statements, and I want to speak to different audiences here. First of all, I want to talk to the church. And here's what it means for us. The mission is urgent. As we sit here this morning, there are over 7 billion people alive on planet Earth. Over 5 billion of them today 
have no relationship with God through Jesus Christ. And that's being generous. Most evangelical scholars would say that the number of evangelical Christians in the world, real born-again believers, would be somewhere between 800 billion and or 800 million and a billion, which would mean somewhere between five and six billion people today on planet Earth. If Jesus Christ were returned today, five to six billion people would enter an eternity apart from Jesus. And get this, almost two billion of them have never heard the gospel in their language one time. Paul wrote in Romans chapter 10. Look at these verses on the screen. But how can they call on him to save them unless they believe in him? And how can they believe in him if they have never heard about him? And how can they hear about him unless someone tells them? Pastor, why are we always at hope? Why are we always talking about starting new churches? Pastor, why at hope? We always sending mission teams to go to other parts of the country and other parts of the world. Why are we always talking about the peoples of the earth and the nation? Let me tell you why. Because the mission is urgent. The world is lost. We are living in the last days. Christ could return, and we have a responsibility to take the message of salvation to the ends of the earth. The mission is urgent. Let me give you the second group I want to talk to. I want to talk to the individual believer. To the believer... Your walk is important. Why? Let me tell you why. Today, the spirit of the Antichrist is alive and at work in the world against Christ. But the spirit of Christ is also in the world. And he lives in you. And he lives in me. John spent two chapters talking about our walk before talking about the last days. Why? Because our walk matters. The people you work with, the people that live beside you, they are influenced, bombarded today by the spirit of the Antichrist. But the spirit of Christ lives in you and Christ desires through you to make yourself known to them and get what John's going to write to us in a couple of chapters. Here's what he's going to say. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Listen to the way Paul wrote about it in 2 Corinthians chapter 2 verse 14. He said, thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ. Listen to this. And manifests through us the sweet aroma of the knowledge of him in every place. You know what's happening? The spirit of Christ is out of your life being, being shown to people at work, at school, at the store, on the ball field. Your walk matters. Why? Because there are people whose eternity is hanging in the balance. And Christ in you desires to make himself known to them. Here's the third. I want to talk to you if you're here today and you're, you're not a believer. Maybe you even think, man, that dude's crazy. <laughs> that guy's loud and he's talking about the end of the world. <laughs> Here's what you got to know. I'm passionate about this because I believe it and have staked my eternity on it. And I'm passionate about it because I want you to know the truth. Here's what I want you to say. Here's what I want to say to the unbeliever today. Listen, if you're here and you don't know Jesus... The time is short. It's short. I don't know if it's going to be another thousand years or tomorrow afternoon at two o'clock. But when he comes, the time to receive him is over. That's why when Jesus showed up, to begin the last age, the last hour, here's what he said in the Gospel of Mark. Look at it. Jesus came into Galilee preaching the Gospel of God and saying, what did he say? The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. 
repent and believe in the gospel. Let's pray. Father, today would you give us ears to hear what it is that you desire to say to us. In the stillness of this moment as you sit before the Lord this morning, I don't know where you are today on your journey and where this truth hits you. Maybe you're here today and You're not a Christian. You're not a follower of Jesus Christ. Here's what I would encourage you to do today. Run to Jesus. Run to Jesus. He loves you. He gave his life so that you could be saved. In just a moment, our worship team is going to lead us in a song. It's not a time to slip out early. It's a time to respond to what God has said. And if God speaks to you and you don't know Jesus and you want to know him, when we stand to sing, I want to invite you to slip out from where you're sitting. We're going to have some pastors here at the front. You come to one of these pastors. All you have to say is this, I need Jesus. And we'll have somebody sit down with you and open a Bible and show you how you can begin a personal relationship with God. All you got to do is come. Just come. Secondly, maybe you're here and you're a believer and there's an area of your walk that you know is not representing Christ and you just need to take a moment, maybe turn your chair into an altar, maybe come get in one of these altars and just ask God to do a fresh work in you. Confess your lack of seriousness about your walk. Or maybe you're here and just a part of the church. And God's broken your heart for lost people and you want to come and just get in one of these altars. Maybe you know somebody who's lost. Maybe God's put a city or a nation or a people on your heart and you want to come and just get in one of these altars and just beg God to save them. Beg God for a movement of the gospel in their lives. For others of you, maybe you just need to pray with one of our pastors about something in your job, your health, your family. We're here. We'd be honored to pray for you and pray with you. Let's respond as the Holy Spirit speaks. Let's respond. Lord, we trust that you are speaking. You say you always do what you send your word to do. So Holy Spirit, in this moment, we ask you to just take over, speak and communicate, convict. Lord, I pray for those that don't know Jesus. I pray right now they would run to Jesus to be saved. We love you. Break us, oh God, for the peoples of the world. It's in the name of Jesus.